Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When Jesus uses the word body in Matthew's gospel, unless you abandon all assumptions, transporting yourself to first century Roman society, it is impossible to hear, let alone understand, what the Lord is saying during his Last Supper. The disciples may be concerned with tribe and city, eager to wave their flags and pledge their allegiances, but Jesus Christ has a different mission. The difficult work he is about to do is a public matter, but it has nothing to do with their silly flags and allegiances. It pertains to the entire commonwealth on behalf of all and for all. In the letters of St. Paul, the Lord's body are the people in your neighborhood, and all we are, brothers and sisters, are just bricks in the wall. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 26 to 29. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 397 of the Bible as Literature podcast. How many times in the last year have you heard someone foolishly and laughably refer to their physical body as the temple of the Holy Spirit when talking about vaccines? Don't answer that, Richard. Don't answer that. We know we've had to suffer through all these lectures. I'm not going to pollute the temple of the Holy Spirit. Each time someone says that, I know, Richard, you roll your eyes, sometimes maybe silently, other times not so silently, because every once in a while, even the most, well, not so humble among us cannot hold back against the deluge of the absurdity of Western individualism. Honest to God, people, do you really think when the Apostle Paul or the Gospel of Matthew or Jesus, more specifically, in the Gospel of Matthew uses the word body, he's talking about a physical body, let alone your physical body, If, after having listened to the Bible as Literature podcast all these years, you still think we're talking about you or your physical body, or you still really believe that you, as an individual, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, I give up. (laughs) 
I don't know what to say, Rich. Paul talks about the collective of believers and followers of this teaching that make up this body. It's plural. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I always get stumped because people say, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I say, well, how does Jesus then the cornerstone? Like you're the building and Jesus is just a brick? Is that what we're trying to say here? Because the point is it's made of all these different people, but without Jesus being the headstone, the whole building will crumble. Because the teaching is what makes these bricks into a building. That's what it's trying to teach. It actually is teaching anti-individualism. Pink Floyd said, all we are is just another brick in the wall. That's Paul. Yes, that's all we are is just another brick in the wall. That's correct. Thank you, Pink Floyd. If you put together Pink Floyd and Mr. Rogers, you have fragments of the teaching of the Apostle Paul. (laughs) We're just a brick in the wall, and these are the people in your neighborhood. If you can piece this together, you begin, you begin to understand the meaning of the words translated into English, body of Jesus Christ. Yeah, the body of Jesus Christ. And, you know, the other thing that when Jesus talks about the body is when he is confronting the Pharisees, and he said, it's not about what goes into the body, it's what comes out of the body that matters. So, You can have all the screeds you want on Facebook and say all manner of nasty things about people as you ignore Matthew 5 and 6 because you're a temple of the Holy Spirit and you don't allow bad things to go in. This is exactly what Jesus is arguing against. Paul is arguing against individualism when it comes to the bricks in the wall of the temple, and Jesus is arguing against what you are putting into your body that might defile you and says it's what comes out of you that defiles you. So put everything you want inside your body. Just make sure you don't see anything cruel to anybody on Facebook or even in the deepest part of your mind. No Christian is interested in that teaching. Now, I told you this earlier, Father. People who tell me such and such comes from Scripture or they read from Scripture, I just assume they're lying. Show me a verse. Oh, oh, thank you for that verse. Give me a moment. We're going to look that verse up together, and we're going to read the chapter, and we're going to try to understand what that means. Let me make sure I have my Greek next to me to make sure that we're not playing fast and loose with the English. That's the only way to do it. Now, coming back to the body, The body is such a central metaphor, and one thing I love about the pericope we're about to do today is we bring together this very important image of the body with the central theme of Matthew, which is the kingdom. We bring together the body and the kingdom in order to understand what this means. What is it for the body to have a relationship vis-a-vis this kingdom? How do those things relate to each other? Literarily, I'm not talking about spiritually or in people's feelings, because then we start talking about my body is a temple or whatever this nonsense is. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, 
eat, this is my body. When Jesus says, this is my body, Matthew is referring to the teaching of the Apostle Paul about the Roman Republic. Caesar, who declared himself the Son of God and built his home in the shape of a religious temple and demanded that the people worship him alongside the other gods, was no different than any of the other monstrous egomaniacs who ruled the ancient world. We like to make a big deal out of Hitler. Hitler was a little kid compared to these maniacs, believe me. That's what Julius Caesar was, a maniac. And he was a really, really powerful, impressive maniac. Jesus was declared his replacement by the New Testament and then crucified. So he was, in effect, demoted and canceled. And his father became the head of the empire above him even though Jesus sits on the throne as a conquered emperor. I want to keep explaining this because people do not realize the extent to which the content of the gospel is integrated with the situation in Rome in late antiquity. When Caesar, like all of the other kings and all of the other gods in the ancient world, when Caesar rules... He consumes the people, just like your pagan gods demand of you sacrifice for their enjoyment and for their fulfillment. Just listen to this famous verse from Micah that we love to quote, and it's typical. That's why your kings and your princes are linked to the worship of false gods, because state and religion are the same thing. You worship power. You worship money. You worship violence. You worship patrimony. You worship identity. You worship clan and tribe and city. Just listen to the prophet Micah. Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them up as for the pot, as meat in a kettle? That's what the gods do. That's what the kings and the princes and the sons of men do. That's what Caesar does. Jesus doesn't want to consume the people. Jesus wants to feed the people. The metaphor of the Eucharist is about the well-being of the body. You share the bounty. Take, eat. We sit together in table fellowship. This is my body. I am going to give my life so that all of you can sit together and eat together in fellowship. This isn't about actually eating Jesus' flesh. 
This is about all of us being able to sit together in fellowship because we will have learned something from Jesus' death. This is happening on the Passover. This is the commemoration of leaving Egypt as slaves and remembering that they too were slaves in Egypt. You commemorate this through this meal. We remember that we were slaves because we eat this meal. The whole point is to remember our slavery and our, not liberation, but change in management. We went from the slaves of Pharaoh to the slaves of the Lord of heaven and earth, the king of this coming kingdom, not the king of an earthly kingdom. And I like the contrast that you drew, Father, because this is the opposite of the Caesar and the Pharaoh, who rather than devouring the bodies of the slaves in order to build pyramids, in order to build temples for the dead, he, on his way to be killed, offers himself. And so the function of the body, as we move from his body to the body of believers, is to be food for others as they remember their own slavery, because Passover also functions as a teaching. In Deuteronomy, what you do is you have this meal and you tell your children and your children's children about how you were slaves in Egypt. It is time to teach. And so the meal is there as a reference for teaching. It always has been, and we see it in contemporary Jewish practice as well. Not that contemporary Jewish practice is the same in ancient, but we see that that's how it functions. So Jesus is using this moment to say, I'm going to use this meal about freedom from slavery so that this teaching is now available to all, and this bread gives life to anyone who wants to enjoy this table fellowship. When Paul talks about the body of Christ, it's on behalf of all and for all. In this sense, the liturgy understands it correctly. It's for the whole republic. It's not just for your group of people. There is no boundary. This is extremely important. And I have to keep stressing this because people hear body of Christ and they start talking about ecclesiology and that is invalid. Paul is talking about the people in your neighborhood. Mr. Rogers got it right. If you want to understand the gospel, you need to walk out of your church and walk around the block, friends. It's extremely important. Otherwise, you're playing the game of nation-state and waving flags and posting bumper stickers. And that has nothing to do with the body of Christ. The only way the phrase body of Christ makes sense in Scripture and has integrity is if you erase Western individualism and suspend ecclesiology and look around you and see the beautiful people whom God created, and you behold the temple whose maker and builder is God, the people around you, and you realize that those are your brothers and sisters 
whatever they are, they are already there without your agency. They are your beautiful people. They are your beloved community, whatever they are. It doesn't matter where they come from, what they look like, what they believe. They are the body of Christ. They are his body. They are his children. They are his people. And to the extent that you are separated from loving them because of something you believe about yourself, you are separated from the love of God, and you are not in communion with Jesus Christ. That is the meaning of the body of Christ and the Eucharist, and it is extremely important because it is the central metaphor of the New Testament. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. So here we have this New Testament, which is the New Covenant. So there is an agreement that's being agreed to here. Now, one thing, people get confused about covenants. Covenants are not always between equals. Some people get confused about that sometimes. This is an agreement that a senior is making with a junior of loyalty. By drinking it, there is an agreement between them, and Jesus is willing to make this agreement with them in spite of their sins, in spite of their rebellion, in spite of their disloyalty they've shown up this time. So he's willing to create a new covenant with them. This is similar to Hosea 3, when God takes his wife to the wilderness again in order to woo her again, in order to marry her again. It's similar to Ezekiel 20, where we have a second exodus, where we start over again. It's similar to Genesis 6 through 8 with the destruction of the world, but then the recreation of the world through Noah. There's this new covenant, a new creation even, a new creation of this relationship. And when I say relationship, I don't want people to get too warm and fuzzy. It's a relationship between a senior and a junior, between a master and a servant. This is not a warm, fuzzy, buddy-buddy relationship. There's a relationship because Jesus has forgiven them of their rebellion that they've shown every single verse up to this point. We just have been talking about that ever since they said, look at how wonderful these bricks are on this building here in Jerusalem. And he's willing to forgive them, but we're going to start a new covenant right now. From this point, you have this teaching that creates the body, and this body which is teaching anyone who wants to come about the slavery to Pharaoh that you are freed from so that you could become slaves to this God, to my Father. And this is what this meal has to do with. We start with that before we talk about anything that happens in church. We have to begin with what this text is saying. It's creating a body that teaches, a body that is broken so that it can teach. We have a body that feeds others around its own block in the neighborhood, as you said, Father. And there's a covenant in spite of your sins, in spite of your rebellion, in spite of your disloyalty to this teaching, I'm willing to start at this point, drink the wine, and we can go forward as my students, my true students, not my rebellious hangers-on and coattail riders, but true students 
who want to continue this teaching on to the next generation. Not to continue themselves. Not to continue themselves. To continue the instruction, the words of the Father. If you are hearing what Matthew is saying, if you are hearing what Jesus is teaching at this table fellowship, you have to imagine your churches crumbling and your communities dispersing and your wealth dissipating to feed the poor. That will not look good on a balance sheet. That does not look good on an annual report. You can't put it in a marketing brochure and your donors will not be happy with your progress. But thanks be to God, they will not be numbered with the 12 at the judgment, counting who shall enter and who shall be rejected. They will not come with Christ and the martyrs on that day to decide who performed and who didn't perform. I'm not speaking in metaphor or hyperbole. I am speaking according to the gospel. This is not Middle Eastern exaggeration, as the Orientalists like to say with a little tinge of racism, because the gospel puts you in a situation, as we've said over and over again, where you have to be perfect and you can't be. So you can joke, you can squirm, you can explain your way out of it, but the fact remains that this teaching is saying, give it all away and let yourself be broken so that the people can be fed. And that is not what we do. We go the opposite way because it is human nature to go the opposite way. Are you saying, Father, that we should allow the temple to be destroyed, the temple of my body? Absolutely. And in three days, <laughs> it may or may not be raised again. But that's not my problem because I'm not God. I have only to trust in the Lord and keep vigil with Havakuk. That's the point. I may be stuck with empires consuming the earth, as you taught me, Richard, through your study of the Book of the Twelve. But that's fine because I don't have to worry about fruits. I'm only interested in sowing the seed and establishing the roots of the gospel. God is the one who will tend to the fruits on that day. It's a very important point, and it has to keep being repeated in the age of the iPhone and Facebook. It just has to keep being repeated. I stood in church on Sunday and preached at a wedding against identity and flags and bumper stickers to a room full of people who are waiting to post pictures of the wedding on Facebook, which requires de facto their identity. What do you do with that? We're stuck. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus again is saying this is the end. We're done. I'm not teaching you anymore. You have my teaching. That's an important part here because I think people forget. They think that this is just kind of Jesus continuing on with his ministry. But he has been warning the disciples this entire chapter that the end is now. I'm not doing anything more. That's why he went into that long speech in chapters 24 and 25 is because that was his salutatory address. I mean, that was the end. 
I'm done. This is the last covenant. This is the last covenant until the coming of the kingdom. So all these parables about the kingdom is like, the kingdom will be, the king, the Lord, like all these parables, all these teachings, they're now coming to fruition. And I like fruition because then fruition is wine and that sort of thing. I like speaking in this literary world. It's all coming. The wine is ready to drink now, but the next vintage won't be until the kingdom comes. The teaching is here. You know what you are. You know what your orders are. You drink this wine. You are one of us. You are under orders. You are now the slaves of this kingdom, of this household. You are now to go and do your duty. Your duty. Your duty. And the duty was explained at the end of Matthew 25. That's when anyone talks about, you know, keeping the temple pure. I say, you know, just do it short. Let's just read the end of Matthew 25, and we'll understand what's actually important, because this is actually the judgment doesn't have anything to do with eating chocolate cake. Like, it has to do with making sure that hungry people have chocolate cake. That's what it's about. And here, you will not get a chance to sit at this table until the big feast, the big Passover, when this entire life of life and death and everything as we know will be swept away because there will be the one ruler, and that is God, the Father of Jesus. This reference to the kingdom is ominous, as you say, Richard, on the one hand, because it's a mic drop, but it's also a bit like the last lecture in a course before the exam, and it's how the New Testament functions. You're being set up now for the crucifixion and the long wait until the final judgment which is presented to you with this sense of immediacy to place pressure on you always in the New Testament. We've talked about this. But the reality is you don't know the length of time until the Lord comes, but you have to behave as though it's right around the corner because life is short and the Lord comes quickly. That's the spirit of the text. And in that period of time between the mic drop and the final judgment— you are in the position of Habakkuk. All you see around you is the tyranny of empire. In our case, the tyranny of the nation-state, which is worse than empire, because, again, there was something about empire that was advantageous to the gospel, whereas the modern nation-state works against the gospel. It is decidedly anti-scriptural because it divides the world into tribes in a way that empires didn't do. This has to be stated openly in 2021 because of the folly and ignorance of what's happening in the churches with the cross and flag mentality that's emerging, which is destructive and demonic. It has to be said, Richard, because the Lord Jesus Christ is being put to death again and again and again because of ignorance and greed and nationalism, which is a sign of the Antichrist. You have to demonstrate between the day of grace when you heard the gospel and the day of peace when the Lord comes in judgment to separate the sheep from the goats, that you can listen to the voice of the shepherd and heed his commandments and walk according to his precepts and obey his instruction and be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. 
that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, look, I gave you everything I could give you. I have laid it out for you. Now I have to go do the work that's been assigned to me by the Father. I'm going to go give my body over and spill my blood for the sake of the Republic so that the people will finally learn and get the message that they should break bread together as brothers and sisters. You have to get that message, and you have to keep teaching people to break bread together as brothers and sisters. That's what this is about. I know that's not very exciting to empire builders, and worse, it's offensive to nation-state builders. But I could care less what offends them. This is what I'm about, and I'm going to give my life for my father's teaching. I trust him that he will vindicate me. And when he vindicates me, I will come back to take account of who has been faithful and who has not been faithful to what has been asked of them. See you later. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.